Brothers and sisters, Pastor Jason here. I'm excited to be back with you here on this episode. I want to encourage you to share our website with other people. It's pastorbytesbytes.com. Uh, it's a great encouragement. We've received over 1,600 downloads at this point, and we're glad to be able to get the Word of God out and to be able to teach people on the Word of God and the Scriptures. But I want to talk to you on this episode about something I've been wanting to talk about for a while and it's talking about type of codependency. Again, we've had different models I've spoke about with Jonah, with Abigail, and I just really want to try to give you this different diagram. I told you in the past in these other episodes that there were six basic types. I also talked about Jonah in one of the types of codependency, and I want to talk to you about the type of abuser, and it's so important because there are so many people that have been abused by somebody, been abused by their parents, been abused by a spouse. And in the ministry, we deal a lot with these type of people. And also, from time to time, we run across someone that is the abuser that we get to counsel and we get to help. And so it's so important that we understand this. Even if it's not us, it's important that we understand where this comes from. Because if we can understand where someone comes from, then we have an easier time to be able to relate to them and be able to minister to them on that level. And the Bible gives a clear example of this, and I'm going to call this what Dr. Reiner called it whenever I went to school, and in his book, The Codependent, Independent, Worldly Failure. That's The Codependent, Independent, Worldly Failure. And that's found in the book of Transformation with Dr. Reiner that wrote the wonderful book. This is a type of a person that is an abuser. And you remember King Saul, uh, you know, when we look back on the life of King Saul, we remember that King Saul's relationship with David, that he kept trying to kill David, that David would come within an inch of his life. He, you know, remember David played the harp for him. You know, he actually was being oppressed by a demonic spirit and David played the harp and soothed him. And we know that David was a great warrior, a great friend of Jonathan. And so Jonathan being Saul's son, was a very loving, kind young man and had a great relationship with David. And so David was for King Saul. He, matter of fact, he fought for King Saul, but King Saul got jealous of David. And so when he got jealous of David, it turned the relationship around with no apparent reason. There's no reason, but remember King Saul heard, you know, call, you know, Saul's killed his thousands and David's killed 10,000s. He heard someone singing that song and it infuriated him. When I believe if King Saul would have embraced David, King Saul could have been the greatest king ever in the kingdom of God. But we see Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 9 and also chapter 10. It continues on through 1 Samuel. But it is important to understand this type of worldly failure, this codependent, independent. And the one of the things that we, we find, first of all, the first failure that he has. Now, there's one thing to fail. You know, we have all fail all the time and even daily. But there's another thing to be in chronic failure. You know, God has not set us along a path of failure to continually fail and fail and fail and fail. But Saul had failure after failure. He did very few things that's recorded in Scripture that were right or as he was told to do. Remember, he would do them partway. Remember when he was supposed to destroy all the Amalekites? And Amalekites are always a type of the flesh. Whenever we read Amalekites in the Old Testament, we should think of the flesh. And he was told by Samuel, he said, God said, destroy them all, keep nothing. But he kept King Agag back. 
He kept the best, some of the best of the people and the best of the livestock and also some of the plunder that they had. And then Saul turns around and blames it on the people. So not only was he an abuser to David, he also would turn things around and say it wasn't his fault. He wouldn't admit his mistakes and his responsibilities to doing wrong. And part of repentance is admitting when we've done wrong. It's the biggest part of repentance just by simply doing that. But he had this facade of pride that I'm this big person, that I'm this big king, and I, I didn't do anything wrong and everything is everyone else's fault. Now, God anointed him king, not by his choice, but by God chose him because, remember, he was the people's king. The people said, we need a king. We need a king. So we go from the time of judges to the time of kings. And when the people asked for a king, then King Saul was the one that Samuel then went and anointed and picked. But the first time we find King Saul in the Bible, he's hunting for the donkeys, And remember, whenever you see donkeys, most generally, that symbolizes, you know, I'm a big types and shadows and symbolism guy. When you see the word donkey in the Bible, it's basically the capability to do work. And remember, he hunted for the donkey so long, this job, the one little job that his father, just to prove him useful, had, and this is also alluded to in Dr. Reiner's book, but the one job he had was to go find the donkeys, go, go do show yourself useful son and go out and find these donkeys or your ability to do some kind of work for me. But remember he hunted and hunted and hunted and hunted from town to town to town. And all those towns have symbolic meetings. You can meanings, you can resort to the book if you want to, but they all have symbolic meanings, but I'm not going to go into that, but I'm going to say he searched and searched so long for those donkeys. Finally, Samuel comes to him and says, Hey, the donkeys have been found, you know, quit worrying about the donkeys. They're, they're taken care of. They've been found. So this capability of the first job that he had on the scene, he failed at that job. Now, if it was that one failure, that's one thing, but I don't see anything spiritual that you can make out of that. And then the prophet of God finds him. Remember what our Lord Jesus Christ came walking into Jerusalem through the Eastern gate. When he came walking in, what was he riding on? He was he was riding in on a donkey. And when he was riding in a donkey, I believe that symbolizes that he had tamed the flesh. He had tamed the work that he did, that he came to do. The work was completed. It was tamed perfectly to where he came walking in on a mule on, or excuse me, on a donkey to where he was able to then say, I completed the work. But see, Saul never could complete any work. He never could do any. Matter of fact, he could have embraced David. He failed at that because then he ended up dying on a battlefield and falling on his own sword. And then his son also dying, he failed in, in war, even though he was a head taller than other people. And the second time that we see him failing is whenever we come and see him that he's hidden in the stuff in first Samuel chapter 10, verse 22. See, Samuel had anointed him king. And he said, now you're a king. And the Bible says that a new heart was put in within him. And he, and once he anointed him, he went on about and started gathering the people. And when he gathered the people and gathered the people, finally, in 1022 of 1 Samuel, it says that he was hiding in the stuff. And here's what the verse says. Therefore, they inquired of the Lord further, if the man should yet come after. And the Lord answered, behold, he hath hid himself among the stuff. So it's his time. It's his time. Finally, he had been anointed. He'd been told he was king, not to say that he rejected that or said, I won't be. But then finally, by the time they gather all the people, he feels so inadequate. And that's so important because it's one thing to not feel worthy. It's another thing to feel worthless. Always you'll find an abuser all of the time you'll find with an abuser. 
when they abuse other people, they, they beat other people, they verbally attack other people and they live a life of doing that. It's just the abuse is an outward manifestation of an inward sign of they feel worthless. And so if I feel worthless, if I'm an abuser and I feel worthless, then I attack other people and hurt other people because I feel so worthless. I tell people all the time, hurting people, hurt people, hurting people, hurt people. And so I try not to, to get angry or get frustrated at the first chance of seeing an abuser. I try to find empathy and compassion for that person and try to ask myself, what is it? You know, there are Christians that are abusers. There are people that have accepted Christ, but stay in the old behavior because they haven't learned to battle the flesh. They haven't learned that their inadequacy means nothing. How they feel worthless means nothing because Jesus Christ died on the cross that he may prove that we are worthy. No, we weren't worthy, but we're sure not worthless. We are sons and daughters of the most high God, not just servants, but we're sons and daughters loved with a grace beyond imaginable. And if we could embrace that, if the worldly failure could embrace that no matter how they failed, God still loves them, it would change their life forever. And the Bible says in Psalms, so a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So a man and a woman thinks in their heart, so are they. If we think we're a worthless, no good, blankety blank, then we will remain that way. We will continue to fail again and again And again, so here's Saul. They call this big congregation together and say, hey, here's your king. And the Lord has to tell him, hey, he's hidden over in his stuff. He feels so worthless. He finally got to thinking about it and got anxiety or got worried. And he's hiding in this stuff. So finally they bring him out and they say, look, he's a head taller than everyone else. I mean, he actually was a good fit for a king. He was a big man. And the Bible says he was a good man. He was a fair man to look at. So he not only was a head taller, but he was a fine looking man. And so he was a perfect king. But see, sometimes, you know, I, I tell people this sometimes, and I've got some strange looks throughout the years, but I say, I tell people, if you see a real, real pretty woman, I know I'm on dangerous ground here. So I might be talking to some real pretty women right now, but if you see a real, real pretty woman and her makeup is perfect and her dress is perfect and there's not a wrinkle, not a flaw and every hair in place. And I mean, they've got the paint on their face. Perfect. Everything's right. They smell There's nothing wrong. And you think, my goodness, that person's probably a model. She's probably a queen. She sure looks like it. And I tell people sometimes too perfect means that there's an inward sign that they have to prove to everyone how beautiful they are. And, you know, someone that never goes out and never would be caught in public without their makeup on. And I know there's a place for that. And I know it's fine that women wear makeup. And I've heard people get up early and do their makeup and there's no problem. But if you feel like if you don't put all that on and look perfect, then you feel bad about yourself. Friends, I've got news for all of you. One day we're going to every position we have in life, even if we've reached the pinnacle of of the president of the United States, whatever it is that you think the pinnacle of life is eventually you're going to have to step down because of health. You're going to have to step away because of age. You're going to have to step away because of health. There's some reason why you'll have to step down. And I pray that people don't have their identity in how they look. You know, what happens, God forbid, if we have a surgery or we have an accident and something happens to our face or to our body, what would we be then? But our inadequacy is always met and complete in the work of the cross and what Jesus did on the cross. So this this independent worldly failure, they have this need of worthlessness. And Saul's found hidden in the stuff. They get him out. He's a head taller than everyone else. And then they all shout and say, praise God, you know, he gave us a king. 
But then you see in his life again, he continues to fail with the Amalekites. He continues to fail with his relationship with David. He continues to fail in these areas. He fails, you know, finally, like I said, on the battlefield, but there's failure. It's chronic failure. And then he's an abuser. And his his frustration with life, Paul, uh, Saul's frustration with life is Saul, King Saul finally says, look, I'm so worthless. The you know people they're loving David more than they love me. So the only thing I can do is destroy and kill the one person that actually had Saul's back. You know, King Saul again could have had a kingdom beyond our understanding, or definitely changed the future if he'd embraced King David. But see, then finally, last but not least, King Saul's asked by Samuel. Samuel says to King Saul, he says, "Okay." He says, "Now we're over by Gilgal." He says, "Now just wait." And he said, "I'm going to come back. I'm going to get instruction." And he said, "If you'll wait seven days now to give a sacrifice, I'll be back." So then King Saul waits, and the Bible says that he thought that then the people were scattered. So then he went ahead and offered a burnt offering and a sacrifice. But it was on that seventh day. He did that more than likely, started preparing on the sixth, and then maybe during the sixth and then the, the later part, the earlier part of the seventh day, he didn't see Samuel coming. So he just went ahead and did it himself. See, he did not wait. He had no patience to wait on God. He thought he had to take matters in his own hands. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 11, Samuel says to King Saul, he says, what hast thou done? And Saul said, because I saw the people were scattered from me and that thou comest not thou within the seven, within the days appointed and the Philistines gathered themselves together at Michmash. Therefore, I said, the Philistines will come down now upon Gilgal. I have not made supplication in the Lord. I forced myself, therefore, and offered a burnt offering. He says, I forced myself. So he got out in the flesh and he made himself. He knew that it was wrong to make the sacrifice. He knew he was not a prophet of God that he was a king. So see, King Saul went between feelings of inadequacy and then pride and operating in the flesh. And the person that abuses, that's where it they can't walk in the spirit for long. Saul did a few things right. But the thing is, he would go from in, he would go from one ditch to the other, never to find balance. I'm either a worthless, no good person that's not worth even being king and I'll hide in this stuff, or now I can handle it in my own flesh and the prophet of God won't hurry back. You know, they didn't have Uber back then. You know, they didn't have trains back then. I mean, he might've got hung up a little bit, but the prophet of God said, wait till I come back. But then Samuel gives a pronouncement on him. He says, and Samuel said to Saul, thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord God, which he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever, but now thy kingdom shall not continue. And so Samuel gave him the death sentence upon being a king. He told him, and, you know, and basically Samuel then arose and Samuel was upset. You know, he was extremely grieved, but Samuel basically told him now you've done such poorly as a king that now the kingdom, the Saul's kingdom, your kingdom, we rent from you. And of course we know then he went on and Samuel had to anoint David and he was the shepherd boy that he went out and found. And we, we, you know, we just see such a picture 
here of a man that struggles by failing and failing and failing, even when God directly through the prophet of God, honestly, what a great advantage it was for a prophet of God to come to him. Samuel been tried and proven through the years. People had great respect, respect for Samuel that he got an audible word from the Lord, from the man of God. But he, again, even though it was audible, he said, I forced myself to do this thing. He forced himself. Listen, friends, anytime we force ourselves to do something, it's one thing to force ourselves to go to church. It's another thing to be able to force ourselves. But there's another thing whenever you know in direct disobedience to God. See, God's speaking all the time. God's given us the Holy Spirit as Christians, and I believe God speaks all the time. But the question is, as he's telling us, don't do that, don't do that, we know the law of God's written on our heart, and also we have the power and the voice of the Holy Spirit, our comforter, our teacher. We know what we need to do. I heard it said a long time ago, if you have to ask if it's right or wrong, it's probably wrong, so don't do it. And that's such a good principle. But the point is, many times we know what to do. Saul knew that he should wait, but he didn't want to wait. He said, you know what? I can do this. I can take matters into my own hands. And therefore, he failed again. And of course, we know the rest of the story is bleak from there. And then at one time, King Saul, he had basically began to kill and persecute all the witches and all the sorcerers in the land. I mean, he was getting rid of the demonic forces, but then he gets so sick himself in spirit and so weak in spirit and so beat down because of his failures and his inadequacy to be able to rule as a good king. Then he consults the witch of Endor. I mean, how much worse can it get than she says she freaked her out when she seen who she was? And she says, are you going to kill me? What are you doing? And then he consults, he calls up, has this witch call up, you know, Samuel from the dead and then begins to talk like and in Samuel, of course, you know, and that's a debatable part of scripture right there. But basically through God and his wisdom allowed Samuel to say, hey, what have you done waking me up from this? I mean, what is wrong with you? But I mean, he still didn't listen. He never turned to the Lord. See, Saul, he did a lot of things wrong, but David did as far as record-wise. And if you if you looked at him in stature and in, in human sense, David did much more wrong. The difference between David and Saul was David repented. Remember whenever Nathan came to David, he says, you, basically, you have done wrong. He said, you, thou art the man. And when he told him that, David fell down and weeped and cried and said, oh, I am the man. I mean, he had a repentant heart. David failed, but he always turned back to the one that could forgive him. He always turned back to the one that could help him. And he knew his sin with Bathsheba was horrible. He knew having Uriah killed was horrible, but he had a repentant heart. He had a heart that consoled in an almighty God. He knew he was inadequate to be able to perform, but he also knew what repentance was. And my friends, a repentant heart is what God wants in us. And if you're the abuser or if you know an abuser, the key is, will they have a repentant heart? I tell people this. I've had to counsel with women that have been dating abusers and women that have been married to abusers. And I tell them this. I said, put enough boundary between you to see and give them time to repent. Don't just give them everything they want. They'll keep abusing But my question is, will they come in for counseling? My question is, will they go to church? My question is, will they go to Bible study? Will they show some type of repenting? They can continue in the way they are. And sometimes they do go to church, but will they go to counseling? 
Will they work? Will they go to an anger support group? What will they do? Will they acknowledge they're wrong in this? Or are they just doing things to appease the flesh and appease you to get what they want? And part of repentance is changing and working on things and praying about things. Will they get people of accountability in their life? Many times it may not always be the man. I've counseled with men before and the, their wives won't come in because they don't think they have any problems. First thing it says in my mind is there's a red flag here. Maybe she's the abuser. Maybe it's not physical, but it could be emotional. It could be vocally being abused. He could be being beat down all the time. But if she won't come in, what's the problem here? So see, there's different types of abuse, but it always manifests the same way. It's for an inadequacy to be able to believe that God loves them. And the root problem is attempting to meet your feelings of inadequacy without God through your accomplishments. So you're trying to accomplish something, but it doesn't work. So you get frustrated, so you abuse. These are the people that may start to climb the the ladder of success, but then they have to step on the hands and the feet and the heads of other people to get to the top. And that'll never work out in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not the rat race. We push all the other rats down to get to the top and show who we are. The kingdom of God is as we climb the hill, we take the other rats, if you will, excuse the analogy, and help push them up to the top as well with you. And sometimes you elevate people above you and you may not make as much progress in worldly things because you prefer your brother. Remember, we prefer our sister. Friends, I hope this word's been good to you. And I pray that you study the scripture, look in the life of Saul, counsel someone, help someone, pray for someone that you know to be a worldly failure. Till next time, friends, God bless.